Welcome back. This is episode 89 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And this episode, we have a couple of papers all about... All about glowing... Herpetofauna, I suppose. Yeah. Glowing fluorescent. Fluorescent. Not really glowing, is it? It's not. I don't really know where fluorescence ends and glowing begins, to be honest. Well, I would put glowing as something which is like it's producing the light as opposed to reflecting it. Yeah. Yeah, this is like not really, it's like re emitting, isn't it? Not really. I guess you could mm-hmm. say it is reflecting. Um, but yeah, we're talking about fluorescence. Fluorescence being when short wavelength electromagnetic radiation, aka light, is absorbed and then re emitted at a longer wavelength. And the reason it comes back out at a longer wavelength is because no animal is doing this efficiently. It's some energy is being lost in the process. But what we see as humans that makes this interesting when animals are doing this is you look at the creature and like it looks like it's glowing, right? It's a really bright, freakish color that you'd normally associate with glow sticks at some kind of, I don't know, party, perhaps to celebrate a lunar phase. <laughs> oh, those lunar parties. Haven't seen one of yeah. those in nearly a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, we're talking about fluorescence this is actually a patreon episode for max mclarnan so big up max thanks for the support and if you would like to pick a topic for an episode yourself you can support us at patreon.com slash herp highlights so shall we get into the first paper on fluorescence yeah, go for it. yeah 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 okay so this is by protzel hess schwager glor and shirts 2021 neon green fluorescence in the desert gecko pachydactylus rangii caused by iridophores scientific reports oh yeah an iridophore an iridophore say no more it's the iridophore i mean everybody knows what an iridophore is but (laughs) even when you read about iridophores it's hard to tell exactly what they are i think actually this paper does go some way to fleshing out quite nicely because i used to read about iridophores when i was studying chameleons and it was always a bit vague it was like oh there's these guanine crystals and they're producing some mad light yeah, well, they're basically guano oh. crystals. Yeah, guanine, guanine. The name guano is derived from the word guanine because you can isolate guanine from guano, which is a poo of seabirds or bats, or bats. Yeah, um, I and did that's not know that. yeah, that's actually why guano's guano is called guano. Yeah, you can get it from um, uric acid. So I think you could also isolate it from snake poo if you were that way inclined. Um, but traditionally, because it's actually used in like cosmetics mm-hmm. and stuff, it's got a pu- it's got a purpose for humans. So we grind the fish scales down to a fine meal, and then we slather it on our faces to cover up our imperfections. Incredible, incredible! And then you, it's, I mean, yeah, wow, what a! <laughs> mm. It works well. The reason being is because um, when you mix guanine in with stuff, it makes it opaque or white. So that's why it works in makeup. Um, and in the skin of animals, inside special chromatophores, which are color-producing cells, guanine also has a function for create, creating different colors. Famously blue, um, but apparently they're also in the uh, color-containing or color-producing cells that these little geckos have. But before we get too entrenched in the confusing and dazzling world of why these lizards are this color, which, to be honest, there isn't really yet a firm answer no, for. No, but, but everybody loves to speculate. That's... That's the exactly. fun of a discussion section in a paper. You <laughs> yeah, present exactly. the facts and we then, just... you, then you run with them. But before we get into the crazy coloration of this lizard, I think we should talk a little bit about it because it's quite a special little gecko, this thing. 
Pachydactylus rangii. They also call it the web-footed gecko. So this is, is a gecko that lives in dunes and rye... <laughs> rye, rye riverbeds. The riverbeds are so rye. No, the uh, dunes and dry riverbeds in the Namib desert of Namibia. And it's unique among the entire family Gekonidae. Do you know why, Ben? Because of its hilarious little webbed feet. Yes, which I presume is to do with the sand that it's living amongst and on, as opposed yes. to any sort of aquatic yes. adaptation that you would link with webbed feet. No, it's very unlikely yeah. that this thing is swimming. It's doing... I mean, I, I guess you could say digging in sand is kind of the opposite of swimming, being as sand is dry, water is wet. But yet, maybe. it is, it is anyway, made out of tiny they, uh, little molecules that move around, sort of liquidy, so... You look at sand dunes; yeah, it's kind of wave-like. It's it's the opposite side of the same coin. That's true. Yes, but they use these special feet, and they use them to dig around. They shovel sand, and that is actually, you know, that was thought to be their principal fascinating adaptation. You know, this gecko is famous because it's the only member of the family that has these sand shoveling feet. But apparently, that's not enough for this gecko. It also has to have some crazy coloration, which is very difficult to explain and understand. Yeah. I mean, and uh, yeah, I mean this. This. I was just gonna say, sorry, go on. Looking at this gecko without, you know, fluorescence and all the magic stuff aside, you're talking about a smallish tan gecko with beautiful counter shading. The sort of brown. It's almost like classic camo trouser markings in terms of darker, darker and lighter splotches. It's a pretty. It, when you think desert gecko, I feel like this is the sort of gecko that comes to mind in terms of coloration and styling. Yeah, yeah. The webbed feet look really strange. Yeah, other than the yeah. webbed feet. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely strongly desert colored. But then it's also got these rather unusual markings, which are the bright yellow around the eye and also a bright yellow stripe along the flank when you view it under normal light. And it's these markings, this yellow flank stripe and yellow around the eye that have garnered so much interest because I think it was uh, one of the, I think it was the lead author of this paper who is uh, David Protzel had um, some of these geckos in his care as a pet and he thought to shine a UV light on them because this is when all the chameleon stuff, this is the same team that found out about uh, bioluminescence or fluorescence in chameleons so i think that basically spawned a period where these guys were just shining uv lights on every animal they could find and uh it did feel like there was a there was a wave because there was a whole platypus stuff and also it, it there was a lot of things popping yeah, up all it's the time, really only the past i don't know if that was just flavor of the month things or it was a combination of work building up to a point that just all happened to seem to or even it was Bader Bader Meinhof syndrome sort of thing. You see one fluorescent thing and you're like, oh yeah, no, I saw another thing. I think, that. and it feels like there's lots, but actually, it's, no, I think there has been a, an actual yeah. flurry in the last three years in this stuff. It's basically all just come to light that all these animals which we didn't know were fluorescent are fluorescent, and I'm sure there's going to be many, many more upcoming as people think to turn their UV torches to the animals that they see. In fact, it's not even. Yeah, not even limited to herpetophora. Wasn't there the stuff with uh, puffin bills being UV sensitive too? I haven't caught up with puffin bills, but I know there are quite a few birds that have fluorescent coloration. And there's also flying squirrels. Yeah. Flying squirrels of the genus Glarcomis also have pink fluorescence coming off their bellies when they fly for unknown reasons. 
Oh, the puffin stuff is much older. <laughs> I've known that for a, a wee bit <laughs> It wasn't in the in the recent flurry. So, okay. Yeah. Lots of examples with limited evidence on exactly why. Yeah, so there's a lot of con- sort of um, speculation about why these animals might do these things. It's kind of believed at the moment that a percentage of them are probably doing it for some biologically relevant reason, whereas others might have just had this as a kind of side effect of their other coloration or like some kind of random mm-hmm, mm-hmm. occurrence um you know perhaps the structures which create these colors are also useful in something else uh it's kind of unknown so a lot of this paper was kind of trying to deduce a biologically functional reason for these geckos to have this absolutely wild coloration and the coloration is crazy there's a video on the supplementary material which is well worth a watch where they basically are looking at a gecko side on close up and it's just a normal gecko with albeit quite nice coloration and then they just bring the uv torch across the gecko and the thing just starts glowing like crazy it's just so obviously luminescent yeah it's a nice little video i I, it's a the whole paper's open access it being scientific reports so you can just jump on and track it down i'll throw a link in the show notes too just to get people there quicker but it is a nice yeah i mean what better way of demonstrating its glow than than seeing the before and after and then after again it's great it's cool it is cool and um so that i mean that video you know it's basically case closed these things are fluorescing 100 percent. there's no denying it but as we said the big question is you know why why are they doing this is it biologically significant does it in some way benefit the geckos um or have they just evolved this as some kind of byproducts or something else and the long story short is that it's actually unclear why but the authors do come up with some quite compelling arguments as to why this might serve a function in the communication of geckos yeah i mean i feel like their chief uh bit of evidence to to so to sort of even warrant discussion on why it's glowing is the intensity of how how it glows it is a really intensive glow and it is intensive enough that things are going to be able to see it, presumably, you know, other geckos. But you know, that's the first step. If it, if if these animals are glowing, but the glow is so weak or requires such intense light that you would never either conspecifics or or whoever they're trying to communicate with or show off to couldn't mm. pick it up or wouldn't even you know don't even see UV or something. You've got to really start questioning what would be the utility of it. And okay, so it's going to be something non-adaptive or not, not like you're saying, a sort of an accident, yeah. Essentially, from from something else, a, a byproduct. But this one is particularly strong. This is a particularly potent fluorescence, which does lend itself to okay. Then there's probably got to be a pretty decent reason for it, and opens the door that others can see it and therefore there can be a pressure on it or against it. Mm, yeah, you're right. And it is one of the more powerful fluorescence examples in nature that we know of with a, what they term a quantum yield of 12.5%, which as I understand it means 12.5% of the energy that they're absorbing as one kind of light is being re-emitted as the next kind of light, which apparently is quite efficient. It doesn't sound very it sounds efficient. inefficient if you ask me. If I was finding out that 12, only 12.5% of my electricity was powering my light bulbs, I'd be fuming. Yeah. <laughs> well, unless unless you could double down and use the uh, remaining inefficient... wasn't coming out as light, coming out as heat or something. You use them as little heaters. Mm. Then you'd be all right. That'd be quite nice. Yeah, so... Turn off the central heat and use the light bulbs. <laughs> so let's talk about 
the potential arguments for this being a means of communicating with other geckos, perhaps even just a, a way of recognizing at long distances that there's another gecko over there. So first of all, um, all of the fluorescent patches of skin are on the flanks of this gecko and or around the eye. And if you look at the gecko directly from above, which the authors posit would be where their predators would be looking at them from, you really can't see a lot of the fluorescence, right? It just looks like a brown gecko. So that's an argument for, okay, the fluorescence is hidden from predators. So perhaps it may be used in communication. The second thing, which suggests that it might be useful for this, is that the geckos seem to be somewhat sociable. Now, there's evidence in captivity that if a gecko is separated from another gecko for a bit and then the geckos are put back together, they'll run up to each other in some kind of gecko-based greeting. Obviously, that's captivity. You don't know what that <laughs> greeting means. It could easily be hostile, um, but it doesn't appear that way. So there's like some kind of light evidence that maybe they are in some way communicating with each other. The other thing is that the geckos will sometimes go up to each other, again in captivity, and actually lick water from each other's bodies. So if you imagine these guys are from a desert environment, a lot of the water is going to be from dew rather than actually standing water, right? In the Namib desert, it's crazy hot. So the geckos are quite prone to licking the water off their own heads and faces when it's condensed on their bodies. And it seems they also like to do this from the bodies of other geckos. Obviously, they're a tongue their own tongue can only reach a small portion of their body, right? They can like lick their own eyes, they can lick their face, maybe a bit of the neck, perhaps their little hands, but they can't lick their own backs or their own bellies. So it could be that the geckos <laughs> are using this bio, this uh, fluorescence as a means of spotting another gecko far away so they can run up and give them a good licking, get some water. It's a possibility. <laughs> kind of a compelling possibility, but not in any way a definite possibility. Uh, and they also add to this the fact that the geckos themselves, although they haven't explicitly tested the um, vision of these um, web-footed geckos, they know that the majority of nocturnal geckos have quite good color discrimination, even in low light conditions. And they can see quite a wide array of different wavelengths as well. So it, there is a likelihood that the geckos themselves are able to perceive this light, which is, of course, really important if they're going to be using it to communicate with each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can you can imagine an environment with. I mean, they say in the paper that they're they're solitary and at lower densities, but um, I was interested to see how that how that was sort of determined the low density thing because uh, anything that actually gets good handle on populations of herpetofauna in non temperate areas is super super valuable. Always, always looking for stuff like that, but I, I can't find where that that stuff is coming from, which is a shame. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering how the sort of sociality, other other than this pure licking water off each other or um, mating success sort of stuff, finding finding partners, I'm wondering how the sort of sociality plays out in a species that's low density mm. when you're. I'm just yeah. I'm I'm wondering about that interplay, basically. Um, mm. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You're basically saying like, okay, if there's not that many of these geckos about, is it actually going to be relevant for them to have this? But I suppose, I mean, there's no. The counterpoint is that if it's super super valuable, then there is a yeah. a worthwhile while sort of pressure to to. Yeah, it's kind of like it, where's that I balance suppose. between the value of water if it is indeed the reason why they've got this and 
the rarity of actually seeing another gecko. Yeah, I'm just I'm just sort of playing with these ideas of okay, so if they're already a sociable, well, maybe they're not already a sociable gecko. You know, it can't behold before course chicken and egg sort of thing. But it seems desert environment. The resource of water is connected to geckos, to, like individuals essentially. In this in this case, there isn't going to be a scenario where um, lots of geckos close together are going to be like sapping each other's moisture from the air. Is it you know the the water's fog, mist, whatever? So it's going to be on geckos evenly. One might suspect that a sociable gecko would also exist in a sociable a more consistent social environment but I suppose maybe low density of other resources cause them to disperse and be more you know spread out in low density I just it seems odd if water is such a limiting factor that it would drive a this this fluorescence but not drive a behavioral change because I would have thought that the behavioral change is a sort of lower cost way of getting there but you see what I'm saying? Am I, am I making any sense? What, you mean with... you would have expected them to evolve some kind of behaviour for finding water rather than licking it off each other? No, no, I would I would have thought that that, that licking from each other would uh, encourage them to stay in groups and not be solitary. Mm. So they could... Rather than some elaborate mechanism to find each other. From far away, yeah. But I suppose then... From far away. But then uh, there's another resource driving them apart. That would... Maybe there's not that many... Sort of There could just be not that many bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Which would make a lot of sense in a desert. It's needing to travel decent distances Mm. to find... It's one of those ones where... Those resources. We know way more about the morphology of the animal than we know about its behaviour or wild habits. So you can only really just guess as to why these things are happening. Yeah, but it does point that there are important sort of behavioural aspects or movement aspects that would interplay with something as cool as this fluorescence. Yeah. And it's... it. I mean, it's remarkable, the fluorescence. Absolutely remarkable. It's, it is and very compelling. The idea that they could spot each other long distances is fascinating. I love um, the idea that the gecko is just like, oh, there he is. <laughs> and just like runs over 100 metres across the tubes. <gasps> Lick, yeah. lick, 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 lick. Whereas I would have thought you just get you get two geckos and they're like, well, we'll just team up. Yeah, for a just bit. lick each other and then stay as a duo. Yeah, that would make sense. Then you've yeah. got guaranteed morning. Yeah, yeah, you'd think it would it would sort of um, develop into a kind of squad based gecko habitat where there's just like teams mm-hmm. teams yeah, of geckos. Or, or, yeah, family groups. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's funny. It is funny. But then I guess it is that like we said earlier that it could just be the force from the other side that is low food means that. Maybe they're not actually that tolerant of each other unless they're doing the water licking thing. Could absolutely be. It, yeah. Yeah. Very intriguing. Kind of uh, the kind of paper that um, creates more questions than it answers. But, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing in any way. That's it definitely not a bad thing. I think it... And uh, if you want to read yeah. a kind of uh, lay version of this paper, Mark Schertz, one of the authors, um, a fellow podcaster on Squamates Pod, if you don't already listen... He wrote a really good blog about it, which kind of summarizes their thoughts and findings quite nicely. So I'll share a link to that in the show notes. I also wanted to talk briefly about, because we're talking about this gecko, right? And it's like, okay, mystery time. What's going on? Why why is this coloration the way it is? There is actually an animal with fluorescence, which has a little bit more of a compelling argument, which is this frog called Boana punctata, which fluoresce by a completely different mechanism. It's not... 
although saying that the, the mechanism for these guys isn't well understood, but it is a little bit better understood for this other frog. But the fluorescence in that species um, actually enhances the brightness of the frog under low light conditions, um, which basically converts UV spectrum light to longer wavelengths of light, which the frogs can actually see better. So they get UV light, they fluoresce at a different wavelength, and the frogs can actually see that wavelength better. So it allows them to see each other at longer distances. See, that's that lends a lot of... Cre- seeing another example that, that seems to be... Pretty definite, yeah. Yeah, it does lend a lot of reasons to the idea that they're spotting each other, especially with a desert, if there's if there's less things in between them. So that long distance is really... You know, the limitation is, is light levels as opposed to uh, being behind a rock. Yeah. <laughs> or in a forest environment or something. It really does start tying everything together it nicely. Does, yeah, it's like... It's almost yeah. It feels like you're yeah. It feels like you're on the cusp of just being like yeah, cool. That is why. Um, yeah, you just need that behavioural stuff just to tie it up, yeah. and which I've, I'm sure maybe a little bit of movement or, or tendencies to move after spotting a gecko <laughs> or things <laughs> like that. You know what you you want those tiny GPS devices that don't exist yet. All those little That's what you, you want. just want the geckos Always. in a grid, right? Or just like in their dune environment, and then each one's got a tiny little GPS stuck on its back and then you can just see them you can yep. see them like you could say oh look that gecko's in range of this gecko this gecko and this gecko oh look it's making a beeline for that gecko yep. that'd be so cool oh i think what's really for what what frustrates me about it is i know that the like analysis side of this the stat side of this has been dealt with yeah and is is pretty damn advanced the the real limiter is getting that fine scale movement data on an animal that size yeah. over a decent period of time. I think I think you could do it short term. I think that would be doable. I'm not sure how cheap it would be, but Yeah. I would I look forward to the day when someone is. And it also depends how fossorial they are too. If they're very fossorial that would cause issues. Yeah, I mean they've got those they've got those specialized diggy feet, so it could be the case that they're Yeah. All right, so from one sort of semi-sure explanation for fluorescence to one which is as yet completely unknown. Intriguing explanation. It's an intriguing explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to paper two. So this one, Rebusas, Carallo, Freitas, Lambertini, Santos, and Toledo, 2019, is the conspicuous dorsal coloration of the Atlantic forest pumpkin toadlets aposomatic and this one published in salamandra so we're going from the deserts of namibia to the brazilian atlantic forest it couldn't be any more lush did you did you say the authors yeah okay did i cut out i think i just blacked out yeah, yeah. no i i don't know i think it was my brain just okay. shut down are you all right <laughs> uh yeah it's no. the others <laughs> yeah so um we're in the lush green forest of Brazil. It's it's verdant. It's very verdant. And we're talking about a genus of frogs. It's the complete opposite of the desert. It is the opposite. Where there are sand dunes and little webbed geckos looking for their low-density food, presumably. Complete opposite. Life, food, toadlets. It's busy. And we're talking about a genus called Brachycephalus, which just means short-headed. And this is a genus of toads that comes in all different colours, some of which are aposomatic, so they possess warning coloration. Uh, and that's because some of the toads are actually... Presumably aposomatic. Presumably 
presumably aposomatic. Well said, Ben. Up to now, we've assumed these toads are aposomatic because there are evidence from other species that suggests colours like red and yellow are generally seen to be distasteful. So the idea is that predators eat something, it tastes bad, 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 or it's poisonous, and then they don't want to eat it anymore because they recognise that that colour and that poisonousness are related. So in order to test... Oh, before we get too far into it, we should mention that these um, Atlantic forest pumpkin toadlets, also known as Barachycephalus epiphium, Epipium? Epipium? They actually yeah, have... Yeah, that sounds... Yeah, they do right. have some um, fluorescent capabilities, right? So the pumpkin toadlet, it's this bright yellowy-orange colour, but it has dermal bones, so bones kind of nestled within the skin. Uh, and these bones protrude out, and they look like this kind of knobbly plate. And there's one knobbly plate on the head, and there's another hot knobbly plate covering the shoulders. And when you shine your UV black light over these nice little toadlets those bony areas fluoresce sort of a whitish blue color and it's quite it's quite obvious to the human eye at least when you do this they look you know it's quite yeah with a u with a imp- uv light important with is, a uv light yeah you know yeah yeah bright and quite close to the total exactly presumably. so the authors of this paper they knew that these frogs had this ability to fluoresce so they so- thought okay let's do a couple of experiments here the first of which was to investigate this fluorescence and they wanted to see whether this fluorescence would deter chickens from eating the toadlets. Chickens, like, I I don't know if it's all birds, but a lot of birds can see UV. It's not all birds, but chickens can, yeah. Yeah, so crit- critical point is that they're seeing if the UV is playing a role in a- any sort of aposematism, i.e., Will a toad that with UV capabilities be less likely to be consumed by the uh, the hen predator than a non-UV? Wait, yes, UV one. Wait, no, I've, I've looked. Which way around? I'm yeah, saying. I think that was fine. So yeah, yeah. The idea being, they they had toadlets. It was you think your classic Thunderdome experiment with a Thunderdome this time being set in a cardboard box, and uh, they had two types of box that they could put the toadlets in. One was glass, and one was some kind of plastic, acrylicy stuff. And the idea is that because UV rays will penetrate glass, but they won't penetrate plastic, the chickens would be presented with a frog in each, and one frog would have been cleverly. Um, Separated from its ability to fluoresce. Had the UV blocked yeah, out. By yeah, by the fact it was in plastic. Yeah. So the chickens would basically see one frog, frog that was fluorescing and one that wasn't. And the idea is that they would preferentially eat the one that wasn't fluorescing because the fluorescence kind of freaks them out. But that didn't... Uh, well, attempt, a- attempt to attempt eat. I mean, to the, eat. the frogs were in their little Well, they boxes, were at first, weren't they, Ben? Yeah. But then they weren't in the box. <laughs> then they were... Then they were... In their little po- in their little polycarbonate yeah, safety Yeah, but then cube. in the second experiment with the chickens, they removed the element of the box and they just put a frog in with the chicken and l- allowed the chicken to sample the t- the toadlet. And then they went, then they repeated the experiment to see if the chicken had learned that the fluorescence means the toadlet tastes bad. What did they discover from this experiment? I think the principal finding is that chickens are savages and literally don't care about any of this stuff. They just want to peck it to death, whatever it is. There was no. I, there was no compelling evidence for the chickens, chickens realising anything was going on other than they were eating toadlets. Yeah, they, as far as they're concerned, they just had some toadlets. Um, now, that, to me, that's not a that's not a sort of case closed. Oh, absolutely not. No way. Nah. 
no aposemitism thing because I mean hens especially they are you know that they, they they were born in the forests they are jungle mm. fowl they deal with noxious things on the ground all the yeah. time so I wouldn't be surprised if hens specifically have a higher tolerance for some toxins um yeah exactly it could be that it could be that these hens so it, raised you know not raised evolutionary raised evolutionarily raised in the jungle eating these crazy things yeah. and therefore not really caring the flip side of it is they could have just been domesticated for so long that they are just inherently competitive eating machines and they don't really care anymore perhaps but i mean the you know the flip side of that is they get food provided therefore that hyper competitiveness is relaxed the need to be resistant to toxins has been relaxed have you ever seen a gang of chickens uh, going around together mate i don't think the competitive nature has been relaxed those things are savage to each other Right, but I think it's they, increased by the close proximity. More savage than they would be in the wild. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> oh, right, maybe I see. So. It could go either <laughs> way. It could go either way. But yeah, I think the point you made earlier about um, the fact that chickens can see UV, I think that was probably quite a limiting factor in this experiment. To actually have a bird whose like cone quanta is understood, then you know we know what they can see. There's not actually that many birds like that, and I think to have that in conjunction with a bird that is domesticated and you can actually access for experiments like this, chickens are pretty uh, yeah access for experiments. Yeah, I mean yeah. chickens are pretty much the only option. Yeah. obviously it would have been more effective if they'd got some kind of native ground dwelling predator and uh, put them in the trials, but you know that's not always practicable. No, no, no way, and you know the amount of uh, sort of prior study on that species to be in a position that you know it's it's visual setup. I mean that is a lot of work, yeah. a lot of work. So no, it was it was hens hens were the best they could work with essentially. Yeah. It, it, it's a it's a it's a sensible compromise. Yeah, but you know the long and the long and short of it is that they didn't really find anything out about the fluorescence. So let's talk about the second experiment, which is where they were basically just testing to see whether or not. Frogs are aposomatic, whether or not that warning coloration uh, actually wards off frogs, uh, excuse me, wards off predators from eating these little toadlets. Right, minus minus the fluorescent aspects now, because we're working with the classic, get a bunch of little plasticine frogs, yeah. put them out in the wild, see what gets chomped yeah. on. Who's nibbling what? And yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, they actually had a good... Um, sort of basis for these three color morphs it's quite interesting because the three different colors of frogs which they used and they had two different sites in two different forests not far from each other um but they had these three different species all from this genus brachycephalus um they had brachycephalus homogenesi homogenesi which is brown uh brachycephalus ephipium which is yellow and brachycephalus pitanga which is red so they had an orange plasticine model, a red plasticine model, and a brown. Did I say orange? I meant yellow. So there's a yellow one, a brown one, a red one. And they put them all around the place in trios. There was yep. like 200 trios. They were all laid out in transects along the forest, some on white cards, some just in the leaf litter. And they looked to see which color got predated upon the most. And it was the brown ones. Yeah, the brown ones by quite a chunk. Yeah, they really bore the brunt. Yeah, it was... It was... Yeah, pretty pretty consistent that the pure crypsis, you know, quote unquote, with crypsis. I mean, obviously, a plasticine model was not a perfect uh, recreation of these little no. frogs, and it is also sitting 
you know, out on something. But yeah, the the quote-unquote cryptic one did far worse in the sense that it got eaten more. I mean, what you've basically done is you've put the three colours out and you've removed... The red and yellow are still going to work as intended, right? Because the aposematism, if indeed they are aposematic, is designed to be seen and then avoided. Whereas the brown one relying on yeah. crypsis you put it on a white piece of card you've just completely removed its only it's defense doomed. yeah so i mean it's very clear that brown is yeah. preferred because things which are brown are generally trying to hide and something that's trying to hide might be delicious to eat right right yellow was marginally better than red though yellow marginally less, eaten less less predation attempts on yellow eaten mm. less so yellow is yes. the most aposomatic color then com- com- from this study for these frogs and red a close second with brown. A close second. Yeah, with mm-hmm. brown just signifying deliciousness. <laughs> brown nowhere brown no to be <laughs> yeah. seen, yeah. It was just... But I think uh, the long... Well, I think the main thing to take home from this paper is it's kind of a good microcosm for the study of fluorescence in general, insofar as, for the most part, fluorescence is still a mystery. And as we said, the past few years, I've just seen this explosion in papers to do with fluorescence and uh, our understanding of its mm-hmm. not only its mechanisms of creation which we don't really understand but also its its function in a lot of these ecosystems is also a complete mystery so yeah fluorescence is just kind of this emerging well emerging more in uh sort of terrestrial animals it's been known in marine creatures and understood quite well for quite a long time yeah, it's worth mentioning the the previous paper we were talking about. They did a very good job at breaking down the uh, mechanism that generated the fluorescence. That's the bulk of the paper is detailing the actual, like underlying structures that were generating yeah. the, they the detail fluorescence. Them. It's the they detail them, but then the the, the take home messages we don't know what actually makes it fluoresce. Like they, these are the structures, but the protein right. which creates the fluorescence is unknown. So we. So we have an idea of yeah. structures, but we don't have an idea of the very the little little biddly biddly thing that's glowy glowy. And we've got some very compelling, but ultimately speculative ideas on yes. why. That is yeah. that is a good summation. And I, what I do like this this second paper for showing. Okay, the fluorescence doesn't seem to be having that much or having any impact with the the hen. We do have a very clear uh, aposematism benefit for the yellow ones. The downside of their their plasticine model stuff is it doesn't speak to the the UV aspect at all. You almost want an additional layer where they had two lots of yellow plasticine models, one with some sort of UV fluorescing paint mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, that would be cool. I mean, that would require you knowing that the sort of fluorescent output in the wild of the bone structures of the toadlets to begin with you'd need to calibrate that yeah that's doable but you could then compare whether so you have this base of like okay we know they're acting aposematism you know aposematism in terms of yellow presumably yeah well no actually for sure because the blastocene models had no uv does the uv make that even better yeah got a good baseline to work from yeah that'd be cool if it did yeah and i mean you know we know that you can get guanine just grind up some fish scales and paste it on the frogs there mm-hmm right but you do need to get it to the right uh the right yeah, you'd have to have the same or, like peak wavelengths or let's say or don't and what you do you do a lovely gradient do maybe i don't know 25 different yellow plasticine 
frog models from zero fluorescence up to whatever. Never actually know what the the original uh, original the species is originally <laughs> original. But uh, if you can if you can show it sort of the aposematism having a you know then being predated less more fluorescent intensity, that's a good indication that the uh, fluorescence could be part of that aposematism and then you find mechanism that, yeah and then you not. subsequently find out that that peak in aposematism also corresponds to the actual fluorescent wavelength of the frog case closed yeah well case reopened little side tangent sliding in id its predators and see if that tallies up with the sensitivity of the predators uh uv pickup too yeah. right yeah because it's not just a simple fact of them picking up UV. It's a they they have a UV peak as well in terms of perception, right? Yeah, absolutely, they do. Yeah, cool. Well, I mean, very very cool. Fluorescence is a kind of a burgeoning thing. I've absolutely no doubt we'll be coming back to this in a future episode when some other fascinating, hopefully ecological facet of fluorescence is better understood. Yeah, I mean, we 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 want the. We want the, the, the final stage stuff, yeah. don't we? We want the, I want to know what the animals are stuff doing in with terms it. of it interplaying yeah. with other animals. Yeah. yeah. The the mechanism stuff is is cool, but it's it's cool, but it's very hard to understand. It's not what, it's not what we yeah. want. Yeah. I really found the paper <laughs> We need simple <laughs> animal glows, it does yeah. this. This, other animals hate the it. The scientific reports <laughs> paper was like it's one of those papers where you're reading it and you're just like, Yes, yes, in. Wow, cool. Oh, wait. What? What? Okay, it stopped making sense. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hello, jargon. Yeah, but yeah, in no way a criticism. So uh, let's move on to our species of the bi-week. So, for this species of the bye week, we are making an homage to our previous episode, which was all about crates, the genus Bungaris. Um, we had loosely planned to have this as part of that pe- uh, episode, but we just had too many crate-based papers, so we thought, we'll bang it on the end of this one. It's too cool of a species to pass up. It's a brand new snake. It's black and white, stripy, and it's venomous. What more could you possibly want? So, this paper is Chen, Shai, Vogel, Ding, and Shai. Multiple lines of evidence reveal a new species of crate from southwestern China and northern Myanmar, published in Zoo Keys in 2021, fresh off the press. So during our last episode, when we were talking about crates, we mentioned there were 15 species in the genus Bungaris. Well, this is the species that made it number 15. This is the 15th in uh, line of Bungaris. And this species, during herpetological surveys in Yunnan province, China, between 2016 and 2019, a series of Bungaris specimens were collected from Yingzhang County. They're a bit of a mystery, these specimens, because on the outside, they looked like they might be members of the Bungaris candidus slash multisynctus slash Wang Haotingi mm-hmm. complex based on their morphology. These are three species of crate which all look broadly similar with the black and white stripes, black and white bands. But this species was mysterious because when they looked at it genetically, it nested in the same lineage as a mystery specimen from Myanmar known only as CAS 221526, reported by Cuck in 2007. So, 
There's but a mystery. What a wonderfully catchy mysterious mystery bungaris. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. So no, it's just. SK number nine. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what they did, they did some morphological and genetic comparisons between these three species, that original one and the original mystery one and the new ones. And they decided, oh, yep, this is a brand new species. It's different enough to justify giving it its own name. An example of how it was different is it has a very elongate hemipene compared to its closer relatives. And so they've described a species and they've called it Bungaris susanae. Do they... They don't have a map in this paper, do they? Oh, they do have a map. It's right at the beginning. Excellent. So I just wanted to get a get a better handle on where the uh, where the specimens came from for this guy in the little the wee stars. So it's we're talking right at the very top of Myanmar, on the border between Myanmar and China, essentially. Yeah, yeah quite low elevations by the look of it, look of it as well. But yeah, so I mentioned the name is Bungara Susanae. That specific epithet of the new species is named after Suzen Bai, who is a famous, powerful goddess of Chinese myth involved in the legend of the white snake. And they named it this in honor of her courage to true love and kindness to people. They call the common, they want to say the common name is uh, Suzen's crate in English. That's pretty cool. And this is a species which can be mm. found in rice fields, streams in monsoon forest, or at least around streams, from elevation 800 metres to 1,560 metres. And the fact that they're found around streams may well be because of their enjoyment of cylindrical foods. These snakes, like many crates, eat eels and snakes, and captive ones will refuse to eat frogs yeah. or mice. They only like things that do not have legs. Very classic Bungaris in that sense, I feel. That's, yeah, cylindrical foods are yeah. the way to go for these guys. And of course, being a crate, very powerful neurotoxic venom, most likely. Although I don't think this species explicitly has been investigated, being as it's brand new. Yeah, we're talking anything from half a metre to metre point four SVL. Yeah. So again, reasonable size for a Bungaris, I, I, I feel. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, and it's got the classic... You know, it's not like a, it's not like a banded banded crate monster but it's good good size you know closer to your candidus yeah and um it's got black and white bands much like other crates um although the bars are quite wide at the bottom and quite narrow at the top at least for the white bars so it almost appears more like black saddles on these guys but yeah the cl- yeah which is meant to be one of the characters that separate them right correct is is the way the uh the uh, the bands yeah. are narrowing. Yeah. So if you can't see the hemipene, go by the bands. Um, but yeah, really cool, um, really nice little new species. Classic, like just like other Bungara species, it's got a white belly, so the bands don't extend around the bottom of the snake. Turn it upside down, it's just sort of a whitey yellow colour. Um, yeah, another new crate, number fifteen. Yeah, cool, wonderful. Um, all right then, Ben. Well, have you got any other business? Um, no. Okay, I I have one item of other business. We had a message from Scott Iper talking a little while ago. We were having a conversation, you and I, about snakes that were blue and saying that we could think of a few. I remember we came up with uh, Tromerosteris insularis. Um, Classic, yeah. I think we did actually talk about um, Dendrolaphus a little bit. Um, You came up with that. Mm -hmm. Yep. With the interstitial scales and yeah. stuff, yeah. Um, I can't think of any others we got to. But Scott had quite a few. Uh, something about 
Yeah, yeah. Push on. Yeah, but Scott had quite a few. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to stall while my Facebook loads the message. Ah, <laughs> uh, here we go. Yeah, so Scott stated quite a few and he shared images. So um, something we didn't think of is Laticorda. So sea uh, crates, Laticorda colubrina and Laticorda... Oh, there is one. Okay, that that makes... We cut. We didn't we say there's. It would make sense that there's a blue, <laughs> a blue yeah, thing in the sea. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is the case. Laticorda, Laticorda colubrina, and Laticorda laticorda. So two of these sea crates, uh, mm-hmm, they can mm-hmm. be banded. And Dendrolaphus punctulata have a blue phase. Um, so we came up with Dendrolaphus. I think we were talking about Pictus. At, Pictus. Um, so yeah, another species of Dendrolaphus. And of course, Scott also mentioned the uh, Insularis, and he sent a picture of a blue one, which is really cool. Um, and he also mentioned Calliophis bivergata, which is a coral snake. Um, just going to Google that now. What does that look like? Oh, okay. Oh, that's of course. Black... <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's cool. Blue Malaysian coral snake. It's literally got blue in the name. And San Francisco garter snakes, which have blue oh, yes. stripes. Yes. Mm-hmm, so yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, blue certainly is uncommon, but not completely unknown from reptiles, oh, from snakes. That blue coral snake is just outrageous. I know, yeah, stunning. it's literally ridiculous. Got to be one of the more beautiful yeah. snakes. It's just. I wonder if there's any yeah. fluorescence in that bad boy. Uh, why would it need it? Well, to deter snakes, to deter birds, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Coral snakes are maybe. so nifty, aren't they? They just yeah, look so yeah. crisp. How can a, a, something wild have such neat lines? Wild. Um, all right, yeah. Well, I think that just about su- sort of draws a close to our episode on fluorescence. Just got a couple yeah. of Patreons to shout out. We've got a couple of new patrons this month. Big up and thank you very much to John Sullivan and Joshua Schluter. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Keeping the lights Keeping on. Keeping the lights on. Thank you very much. So Keeping the podcast yeah. hosted. All right, I'm going to stop dithering there. Yeah, so I think that's just about it, really. All that remains to be said is if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're at herphighlights at gmail.com or we are on all social medias. Uh, just search for herpetological highlights. And yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. 